This Opus of Triloquy is brought to you by Roundtable, your hub for live and on-demand digital courses in music, literature, the arts, and more. Triloquy listeners are invited to a world-class music education, including diving deeper into music theory, celebrating Nina Simone, and studying Schumann and Chopin with renowned expert Louis Rosen. Go to roundtable.org music and use the code LOKI20 for 20% off on any course, especially for Triloquy listeners. I'm Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. And thanks so much for tuning in. Shout out to the returning listeners. Couldn't do this show without you and your very generous support. And shout out to the new listeners. Triloquy is a podcast that's built to decolonize the traditional Western notion of classical music. Each week, I unpack a topic or a news story from the field toward the that goal of expanding dialogues around so-called classical music. I share a recent conversation with folks from the arts who are decolonizing in their own ways. And I offer a weekly Triloquy where I throw a bit of my own life and experience into the mix. For more information about Triloquy, to catch past opuses, and to donate, go over to Triloquy.org. I am extremely excited to introduce to y'all the one and only Althea Waits today. You know, I was talking to Dell and our friend Pete last night. Shout out to Pete. And we got into uh, some Star Wars. So when you think about the Star Wars universe and all of the movies and stories that make up that canon, you have to think about people who are extremely important in their specific contexts but still have a huge impact on the larger goal of things like overturning the empire, people um, and experiences that never directly connect, but in the same way do connect, even if generations are, in this case, movies uh, separated, movies apart. <laughs> uh, I'm bringing that up because I think about people like Ms. Waits in that same way. I'm sure many of y'all have never heard of her, but without her work, composers like Florence Price may still be relatively obscure in, you know, this so-called classical music field. So uh, looking forward to sharing that with y'all more on her and her uh, latest album here shortly. Uh, and then in the Triloquy later on, I'm going to speak to some feelings I had about an orchestral convening that I attended earlier this week. But for right now, I want to quickly shout out something that the Metropolitan Opera is doing that, uh, quite frankly, I never thought would be a thing. I'm reading here from metopera.org. It says on Sunday, October 29th, from 6 a.m. to midnight, the Met will embark on a marathon reading of the entire autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley, presented by the grand uh, presented on the grand tier of the Metropolitan Opera House in connection with the company premiere of Anthony Davis's opera X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. The reading is free and open to the public, and all members of the community are invited to hear the words of the iconic iconic civil rights leader delivered live by an array of performers, writers, artists, scholars, students, and others. I want to shout out um, Anthony Davis, who's the composer of this opera and a member of the Triloquy family. Um, and look, shout out to the Met as well. I've, I've already seen a, a fair bit of hate <laughs> thrown at the Met for doing this because people don't understand the story arc of 
Malcolm X's life. They see him, see him as a vehement anti-Semite and so-called racist, but don't understand that his life is an example over and over again of gaining experience and seeing a broader picture of society and moving forward with that updated information. As many already know, but as many do not know, Malcolm's pilgrimage to Mecca opened his eyes to the oppression of people of all types. He realized that the Islam that he'd been taught was incorrect and didn't affirm all people, um, and he changed much of his ideas around progress accordingly. Of course, this got him killed and killed by his own people, but the point is that Malcolm X was a very dynamic figure and a figure that deserves this platform even in death. I also want to acknowledge some of the uh, blacklash <laughs> from black folks here in New York, especially up here in Harlem. There's this idea that, you know, Malcolm will be rolling over in his grave if he knew that his life story was being used as a marketing tool for an opera that only people with hundreds or thousands of expendable dollars can afford to engage. And I hear that. I get it. But with that being said, our community, and I'm talking about black folk, our community, we've been exposed to the story of this man and idolize him for it. It's the folks down there at Lincoln Center that need to hear what he had to say about them and also what he had to say about society. I often say that anti-racism and so-called DEI is always thrown onto the shoulders of the historically marginalized, but fixing racism is not just black folks' work. That's like saying engaging and dealing with misogyny is women's work. That's absolutely ridiculous, right? I understand and hear the critique that's being put forward um, because I'm still still trying to scrape together my little pennies to get a ticket <laughs> to this opera. Um, and longtime listeners have heard me shit on the plenty, especially in my pre-Buddhism days. But in this moment, I think we have the opportunity to recognize that one of the nation's most exclusive institutions is doing something to rectify past wrongs. I have a, a very busy Sunday coming up, so I don't know if I'll be able to attend most of that reading, but I'm certainly going to pop in and, and catch what I can. And uh, if you're in the New York area, I hope that you will do the same. Now, when I first heard about this event about a week ago, I realized that I had never actually read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, so I've been speed reading through it as best I can. And I wanted to point out an excerpt from it before we got into my dialogue with Althea Waits. I'm about 100 or so pages in into the book at this point. But in the book's introduction, there's something so incredible and relevant to today um, that I had to share. So in the opening here, the, in the just introduction section of the autobiography of Malcolm X, you get the uh, perspective of uh, an, an interviewer, someone who just had dialogue with Malcolm X. Um, and uh, it says here, uh, during this first encounter, Malcolm sought to enlighten me about the Negro mentality. He repeatedly cautioned me to beware of Negro affirmations of goodwill toward the white man. He said that the Negro had been trained to dissemble and conceal his real thoughts as a matter of survival. He argued that the Negro only tells the white man what he believes the white man wishes to hear and that the art of dissembling reached a point where even Negroes cannot truthfully say they understand what their fellow Negroes believe. The art of deception practiced by the Negro was based on a thorough understanding of the white man's mores, he said. At the same time, the Negro has remained a closed book to the white man who has never displayed any interest in understanding 
the Negro. See, that hits home for me as flagrant as I can be on this microphone. I do live in the real world as well, and I have to consider what it looks like for me to bring my entire self to all of the dialogues and spaces that I feel. Uh, Last night was uh, my organization's gala, the American Composers Orchestra, lots of important stakeholders there. I couldn't say to all those people what I really wanted to say, A, because there's a time and place for everything, and sometimes Things shouldn't be brought up when there's alcohol and people are trying to have a good time. I, I I get it. I had a good time as well, you know, so I will acknowledge that. But B, I have to consider how my organization CEO is going to react to someone whispering in her ear that Loki Karuna said X, Y, and Z, which made me feel uncomfortable or made me feel guilty or whatever would be said. It's a really real thing that black folks, especially black folks in classical music, Think of every day. If you're not black, and please understand the specificity of my wording here, if you aren't B-L-A-C-K, the many black folks that you've come in contact with are sending their representatives to dialogue with you depending on where you stand in the field or what power dynamic um, you're a part of, whether it's that of an employer or 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 any sort of thing. Our lived experiences, and, re- and I'm not going to make a bl- blanket statement and say that that's the case across the board, but that is very much a thing. I affirm what Malcolm was writing there. Our lived experiences and reactions are quite often weaponized against us. Our experiences in racism, or if we say someone made us feel uncomfortable or, or X, Y, and Z, that's often weaponized against us. So we simply do and say what we have to, to live another day in this capitalist society. It's been said by many people, and I'll say it here. If you have black friends who haven't talked to you about the ways in which you or people close to you have put forward microaggressions and perpetuated anti-black racism in some way, you don't have black friends. You just know black people. There's a big difference. And I challenge you to think about what that means for you and how you can make room for real dialogue about understanding how racism actually exists in our society and in our field and how that understanding can lead us toward the peace and unity that Malcolm X ultimately wanted to experience. I'm going to bring in another quote uh, from Malcolm X um, in the triloquy, but for now, uh, let's transition into my dialogue with Althea Waits, uh, who was actually the first person to record a piece of music by Florence Price. She's uh, from New Orleans. We talk a bit about that, um, and we talk about her recording projects, one of which um, is pretty new. Her first album was called Black Diamonds, and it featured music by Florence Price, Margaret Bonds, William Grant Still, and Ed Bland. This came out a couple of decades ago. It's a really historic album that you have to check out. Uh, Well, this past September, uh, Althea Waits released Reflections in Time, which features even more music by black composers and a little music by non-black composers that she felt needed to be included as well. Uh, it's a really great album. I so appreciated this dialogue, and I think you will as well. Uh, to get us there, here's a sample from Reflections in Time, her latest album. Althea Waits here in a performance of a flamenco by the late great Margaret Bonds. Hope y'all enjoy
I was thinking back to, oh, I suspect when I was in my 20s and 30s, uh, Natalie Hendelers was one of the uh, Black classical pianists uh, performing. Uh, she passed away many years ago, but I, I remember hearing her and was really inspired. But now prior to Hendelers, I think Andre Watts, of course, uh, was also one of the premier artists of uh, my generation. Uh, he mm -hmm. passed away recently. Uh, I can't, I don't recall any others when I was 11. I mean, there were many pianists like Hazel Scott, for example, who was playing both jazz and classical uh, music. I heard some of her recordings. Um, and then there were other people that I guess just that don't come to my mind right off the bat, you know, but those were the only pianists, black pianists. Now there were, there were far more black singers. Mm -hmm. classical jazz you know opera singers like uh, Leontine Price Marian Anderson I mean we we all know about about them but I can't say the same uh, for uh black pianists other than the ones that I just named you yeah know? I, I remember uh watching a, a Nina Simone documentary and you know she was talking about when she was up and coming um mm -hmm. Andre Watts was the person that you know she mm -hmm. looked to and, and saw as that uh, a premier person out there just because black people, when it comes to comp play, uh, being concert pianists, just because black people didn't have a lot of shine back in those days doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they didn't exist. I mean, I remember, you know, as a kid, it seems like every other place I went with my mom, you know, one of the older women just had a piano in the house and could, yes. you know, play play a little something. So yes. it doesn't it doesn't sound like access to the piano was an issue, but something no. else. Do, do, do you have ideas on that? It may very well have been due to racism and and the fact that the uh, a lot of a lot of people well I'm I'm thinking now of of, of white uh, people both in my community and beyond only thought about black musicians playing jazz and blues and gospel music and music of the church but then the rest of it was just not something that uh, they considered uh, oh well they're not doing that kind of music uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I, I would probably have said the same thing with regard to opera. I mean, Marian Anderson and Roland Hayes, you know, great right. artists that broke the barriers and they 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 performed and they did all of that. But in, in terms of um, the other stuff, I mean, there was that big cultural divide and it really had to do with racism. And, and of course, the stereotypical notions that a lot of people have even today about black art. Oh, well, you know, if you play jazz, I mean, I even get that and they say, well, you're a classical pianist. Do you play jazz? Yeah, I do. I'm not. I'm not uh, saying that it's you know it's not a legitimate art form. Of course it is. My goodness, it's America's classical music. Yeah. So, but they but they ask that because they want to connect me to that by saying, well, you can play Beethoven and you can play Mozart, blah blah blah. But can you do that too? Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. of course, I say yes. But but it's a stereotypical a stereotypical comment. Yeah, you know and, what I mean. And you just very matter-of-factly name jazz as America's classical music, but you know we are still fighting that battle to have anything oh, yes. that sounds marginally like jazz included yes. in classical. I wonder if you could speak more to your perspective on that jazz as classical in, in our context. Well, you know, a lot of, of composers, and I, I hear I have to get into uh, white composers and European composers as well as black composers, they have always incorporated all those elements. I was thinking the first person that comes to my mind is George Gershwin. Mm -hmm. uh, for whatever one wants to say about the Gershwin, I mean, I'm not saying they were great. All I'm saying is that, <laughs> you know, that, that 
opera that has been played and performed to death, Porgy and Bess. There's a lot of things that I, I like about it, a lot of things that I don't like about it, but that's beside the point. He used all of those elements. Uh, Debussy and Ravel, French composers of the early 20th century, also incorporated ragtime and all of those elements of uh, that were already in, in the universe. I mean, mm -hmm. going all the way back to Joplin and James Reese Europe, uh, who were all, you know, they were performing and doing that music. And so everybody caught it. And certainly the European uh, uh, guys, I mentioned Debussy and Ravel, and, and there were others as well. They caught, they caught it. And certainly they incorporated it into it. And Stravinsky, mm -hmm. another, yep. uh, you know, Stravinsky and Bartok. I mean, Stravinsky used ragtime elements in, in a lot of his pieces. And so it wasn't so much that they didn't care about it, but they were influenced, I think, and affected immensely by what was going on in the United States and abroad. And then there were jazz musicians who were going to Europe. I was thinking about Sidney Bechet, mm -hmm. very fine clarinetist, uh, Lester Young. Uh, you know, they, they were going to Europe and they were performing. Josephine Baker, who was a wonderful artist, dancer, singer. I mean, you know, performing in, in, in Paris and doing all of that music and incorporating uh, those forms into what she did in, in, the, uh, in the shows and things like that. So it was always a, a part of it. And I, I think when I mentioned the fact that jazz is America's classical music, I mean, Black musicians created it. You yeah. know, it became a part of what we uh, consider as, uh, okay, classical, quote unquote, whatever that is, you know. But now those two forms are emerged. And uh, I dare say you'll hear a symphony, for example, like like uh, a Shostakovich symphony that doesn't sound, uh, in some cases, like something that was lifted from a book about jazz. You know, mm -hmm. all of the composers were uh, of that generation were influenced by that. Yeah, also thinking about Darius Mio and uh, the creation yes. of the world. That piece, yes, you know, exactly. Yeah, they were all, and and so they caught it, and 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 I think that 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 really kind of um, gets us around this issue that that it's not important or that it's not significant. Of course, it is. And so when people say, "Well, do you play?" Well, of course I do. I mean, I've done shows. In fact, I earned my living. Many, many years ago, just playing jazz in the clubs on the East Coast. Uh, and I did it because I had a full-time job, which really didn't pay enough to <laughs> keep me going. And so on weekends, uh, I would go with uh, two guys, a bassist and a drummer. And we used to do um, shows in the uh, ski resorts in Vermont. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, a, it was just a way, a very important way to earn a living. I had to do something. Yeah. And then, I, and of course, I was also doing things in the churches. I had church jobs uh, from time to time, you know, playing uh, both straight ahead hymns and gospel music, uh, depending yeah. on uh, what the denomination required. So it's a, it's not unlike what I've what I've done, you know, as I said, all all my life. So I can I I have the highest respect and the admiration for anybody who does it. And of course, but to say that jazz should not be, uh, what. A part of our culture or that it's 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 irrelevant i mean that's that's absolutely not acceptable you know it's out yeah. there so far in our conversation there are so many names you've mentioned i want to lift up uh folks like uh, uh james reese europe and you mentioned roland hayes you know there are people yes. these days with doctorates who have never heard these mm -hmm. names is your familiarity with these people the result of 
uh, being to at least some degree their contemporaries or a specific type of study? How do you know these names that so many others don't? I think it's, a, it's about reading about it and 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 just getting gathering as much information as I could. I mean, when I was in college, um, I went to Xavier University in New Orleans, and one of my uh, teachers was really my mentor, Sister Mary Elise, and she coached uh, a lot of students at the undergraduate level who then went on to perform and to do opera and to have some really very, very important uh, careers in the concert world. And so I learned about Roland Hayes from just going to the library and finding a book on Black American music or finding his name in a dictionary. I thought, wow, there's there's a singer that I should know something about. And of course, my husband um, also uh, gave me some feedback about that. You know, you if, if you dig around, you can find these names and, and learn something about their contributions. But like I said, there are people today who don't bother to do that. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they don't know. And it's not that the information is not available. There's much more information available now. Uh, you know, even if you don't have a book in front of you, you can still go to the library or you can go online and Google a name and bam, certain things will pop up. That's one of the things that that's, of course, amazing about the technology. We, we didn't have all of that when, when I was yeah. in college. There was no Internet. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't have cell phones. <laughs> I mean, there were little walkie-talkies that you could walk around and use. But again, you physically had to go to the library and get a book uh, and read. I, I would like to see a lot of that <laughs> kind of thing return because a lot of kids just feel like, well, I don't need to go to the library. I can just go online. I said, but sometimes you need to just pick up the book yeah. <laughs> and read about it and use your technology, but use the book as well yep. to find yep. things out. And you didn't just go to college in New Orleans. You're from New Orleans, I I understand. Yeah, I grew up there. I I wonder um, how having New Orleans just as the backdrop of your adolescence in general informed your your musical career or your early years as a musician. Well, one thing that was really wonderful, um, I think so much has to do with the environment that you're brought up in, as you're pointing out. I mean, New Orleans was always a great city for music of all kinds. Uh, everything from jazz to ragtime to opera, uh, dance, I mean, it was all there. But I grew up in a musical family. Mm. And that really, uh, of course, I mean, if you're surrounded by music a, a lot, uh, most of the time, then you can't help but be uh, affected by that. My mother was a church uh, soloist. Uh, I had a great aunt who played the piano. I had another aunt on my father's side who was a cellist. And then my father had uncles who played in a lot of the brass bands in New Orleans. And so we were just saturated with music all the time. And we didn't have a a television, you know, in in, in our home when I was growing up. But we used to listen to music on the radio. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't we didn't have that. So that was one thing that, of course, was always a, a part of my life. I had a music teacher who came to our home on Saturday morning and I had a lesson. From the time I was six, I had piano lessons. And then at one o'clock, my mom would turn on the radio and say, oh, hell, dear, now it's time for the Metropolitan Opera. Mm. And so, you know, they're, oh, what, what opera are they doing today? You know, and she would tell me. And, of course, you, you couldn't see the production, obviously, but you could listen to the music. And, of course, what my mom would do, we'd go to the library, the public library, and get the scores. And okay. when, I was, wow. uh, when I was old enough to, to actually read 
what was being sung, you know, I could follow along, you know, that took a, that took a while, but, uh, but in the early years, I could listen to the music and my mother would explain what, and, and then of course, you, you know, that, uh, when you listen to it, there's a narrator there who's describing the action, what's going on in the opera, who the singers are, what they're doing. I mean, and, and we still have that. So that's how I grew up. And, um, I had that, uh, that's experience with listening to the Met right up until the, <laughs> the time I, was in college. It was just a part of my daily life. And then uh, my mom would take me to operas at Xavier. One of the things that made Xavier University unique, it's not done right now. We had an opera department Hmm. inside the Department of Music. And Sister Elise was kind of like the grand lady of that. I mean, she, she really took charge of bringing that kind of art form to the students and to the community. And so we used to do opera in the gymnasium at school and the gym was converted into a place where we had seats and the front part, they they built a, a stage with curtains for a dressing room on either side. And the scenery was designed by some of our students, you know, whatever the production was, and I was the rehearsal pianist oh, for wow. a lot of productions. And so, again, I, I had the, the privilege of learning all of that. And, and Sister Elise was kind of, you know, preparing me for a career. And she said, uh, here are some things that you need to know, blah, blah, blah. And so I'd sit down, go through all of this music. I worked with the singers and became a, a rehearsal pianist and a, and a kind of a mini vocal coach. Okay. And, it was amazing. I mean, the, the experience that I had there was invaluable. Now, now what is happening, when Sister Elise died in 1967, all of that activity kind of, I just have to sadly say, died with her. Mm. There was opera going on in New Orleans, but uh, nothing like that is happening now at Xavier. They do have a music department, but I would say it, anyone who wants to focus on a career or a degree in music you would have to go to another university. They are strong now in pre-med. They have a wonderful pre-med program. There's a pharmacy program. There's telecommunications, you know, so the whole focus of the university has changed and it's fine. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not in disagreement with that, Mm -hmm. but I'm just saying that all of that other stuff, all those other things that happened when I was there kind of went when she uh, passed on. And uh, it, I'm, I'm just glad that I was able to participate and to be there when it was when it was happening, because I learned a great deal about opera and, of course, how to prepare uh, opera scores, even music that I was totally unfamiliar with. But as far as the uh, standard opera uh, repertoire, I know it and it's become a part of my uh, part of my heritage. I mean, you have all of those experiences. You had music lessons in your home from an early age with that strong foundation. It seems like uh, the the trajectory of your career makes perfect sense, like everything was completely smooth and, and streamlined. W- were there any big challenges along the way? Oh, oh yeah. It wasn't always streamlined. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it, 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 when, you, when you read about it, you think, oh, yeah, you know, one thing led to another and now here we are, you know. But uh, you have to remember, um, I think you probably know, New Orleans was rigidly segregated by law uh, Mm. when I was growing up. I mean, if you're going to talk about separation uh, and how things uh, were done, 
I mean, that did not change on even after Brown versus Board of Education, you know, the big decision about integrating mm -hmm. the schools in the United States. Uh, it wasn't really until I would dare say the late 70s because there were parents and, of course, right wing extremist groups in the city who fought that decision tooth and nail. They they many people say, oh, I'd rather die than have my child uh, sit next to a black child in a, in a public school. And so. Um, the stores, the department stores on Canal Street, which was one of the main streets in, in downtown New Orleans, you, you could not go into a store and try on uh, clothes or hats or whatever. You could buy something, but you were not allowed to try it on. The theaters, the movie theaters were segregated. Uh, the churches, there were black churches, and then, of course, there were, quote, unquote, white churches. And if you went to a, a so-called white uh, church, you had to sit in the back or in seats. I mean, I mean, can you imagine worshiping and having to deal with something like that? So, of course, mm -hmm. we never, you know, went to those churches. But I'm just saying all of that to tell you that there was a black community thriving in New Orleans. There were black-owned businesses, restaurants, uh, separate from the prevailing white community, and Public transportation was also segregated. You know, there were screens on the buses and streetcars so wow. that when you stepped onto a bus, uh, you had to sit behind a screen that said for colored patrons only. I mean, can you imagine? And that did not change, like I said, until long after Brown versus Board of Education, because there were groups in the city that wanted to maintain that structure. And it just took a long time to get it. Now, of course, the city is completely, well, free of all of that. But I dare say that it, it just took a long time for that to happen. And so when I um, was growing up, that was also a part of my, uh, well, of my environment and, and, and what I experienced. And my parents explained it and said, okay, this is not something that we would accept. And we're not going to accept. We will, we will buy from... Black-owned businesses. My mother was a professional seamstress, and she used to make, she used to design costumes, and she made a lot of my recital uh, dresses, things like that. Because she said, we don't have to go to stores where we can't try on clothes. I mean, yeah. you know, we have that kind of, hey, pride. You know, we don't have to accept uh, uh, being told that we are no good or not good enough, and on and on and on. I mean, but but that that was a a, a very very major part of the history of the city. Uh, in addition to everything else that was uh, that was going on, and like I said, it, it's changed, but uh, not not. It, it took a long time for that to happen. You describe these um, flourishing black businesses. I mean, the fact that you had yes. elders as a child who were already mm -hmm. deeply ingrained in music. So many mm -hmm. people. I won't say so many people. Some people argue that integration, to a degree, destroyed. Some of that, you know, the the mm -hmm. the the community that so many black people have built. I wonder if you have thoughts about that. I would say that it uh, it didn't uh, make it. It actually uh, made it stronger. I, I I have to say that that the the effect that classical music had on me. I mean, from the time that I started uh, the lessons, having lessons in, in in my home, and also being familiar with and uh, all of the elements of jazz. I mean, I didn't actually start playing uh, 
uh, as a jazz, uh, you know, jazz elements or, or as a pianist until much, much later, you know, when I was in college. But uh, I don't feel that it, that it uh, you know, diluted what I had already learned and experienced. As a matter of fact, I think it was just the opposite. I think it made everything stronger because now you probably know that a lot of what we considered as quote, straight ahead jazz has now been infused into the classical uh, disciplines. And it, it's fine. I think it's the greatest thing that could have happened, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, and I, and, and, and I'm, I'm welcoming that. I, I don't, I don't think that there's any, anything that, that people would say, well, it's, it's not worthwhile or we don't need it and that, blah, blah. You know, uh, I don't think that, that there's that kind of division, although racism, of course, I mean, obviously look, we're, I'm not saying that that's over. Right. That is still, Unfortunately and tragically, very much with us. I mean, you've got these forces that are still trying to prevent all of the cultural shift that we need to make things better. You know, they want to take us back to the 40s and 50s. And I'm saying, God, I, I don't, I don't want to go back to that, you know, but but there are people who could care less about uh, moving forward, as you know, yeah. <laughs> in your own work. And along with... Uh you know, the progress that's been made have been names like Florence Price and William Grant still Margaret Bonds being more familiar uh, to mm -hmm. more people, dare I say mainstream these days. But of course, that wasn't always the case. I wonder what it's like for you to see the legacies of these composers come to the front, considering the fact that I'm sure you lived through many years where people had never heard of Florence Price. Yes. And still, yeah, I, I you know, the, the other problem, uh, the, I won't say the other part, what we need to uh, also uh, emphasize is that the, all of those composers you mentioned, uh, Still and Florence Price, they all experienced racism. They did. I mean, Price uh, was the first composer to have a symphony performed by, by a major orchestra. Margaret Bonds went to Northwestern, and guess what? She couldn't even study in the main library. They, they shoved her, they put her down into the basement. Mm. And she used to go to the city library in Evanston uh, to study. I mean, and, and she graduated with degrees in piano and composition. But look what she went through. Northwestern, you know, uh, well, now, yeah, it, it's different. But when I bring that up, I'm saying, look, it was not always this premier university that welcomed everybody. And uh, the same thing is, certainly of tr is true of William Brown. Still, he tried to get operas performed at the Met. He was turned down. So there were companies, small opera companies uh, uh, throughout the United States where some of his uh, his work was being performed. But all I'm saying is that it took them at 125 years to get Terrence Blanchard's uh, work, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, mm -hmm. as the opening uh, work of the season. But look how long it took. Right. And there were black singers, of course, performing. You know, I mentioned Leontine Price and uh, there's Robert McFerrin, Grace Bumber, uh, any number of but to have a, an opera written by a black composer on the roster for the season, that never happened. Well, now they're finally, I mean, how long does it take mm -hmm. to, to, to recognize that here's someone who needs to have, have the work out there? And, and, and I think now a lot of people are saying, this has just been, it's been neglected for too long. So there are other pianists uh, like me. There are people who are writing about it. Uh, it's great, but it just took so long to go through that that uh, that struggle. You know, Margaret Bonds, I should add, lived in Los Angeles during the final years of her life. She was here. Uh, she 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 was a fierce advocate for uh, supporting young uh, composers 
and students. She was a big, big uh, uh, force in, in human rights and civil rights. And that was a part of her career as well. I mean, she really believed that, that this was not only something that she could do with just composing, but she opened a lot of doors uh, for people because she taught at one of the inner city cultural centers. And um, so that's how a lot of her music has become uh, a part of what we're listening to and what we're dealing with now. There is a, a friend of mine in Texas who's writing a, a, the first ever biography of her life and, and music, but it just took a long time, like I said. And so now people are hearing it. Her music is being performed, but it just took an awfully long time. And still, there are some people who, well, who's Margaret Bonds? You know, so, mm -hmm. so whenever I do a, a, a concert, I, I give a little like a brief uh, biographical thing about her, what she did and uh, recordings. I'm not the only one who's doing recordings by Bonds. I mean, you know, the music is out there and it's uh, it's available on all the streaming services now. There are singers and pianists who are doing a music, and I, I think it's wonderful. But it just took a long time. I thought, my God, you mean to tell me that nobody knows about this? I mean, why should it have taken the Met over 125 years? Mm -hmm. It worked by mm -hmm. William Grant Still, for heaven's sake. <laughs> or L.A. Opera, you know, finally. Yeah, yeah. So it, you know, it just took so long. I mean, I, I just... Uh, and it's nothing but racism and 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 the stereotypes that all of these people have had, and I have to say, and still have about us. You know, I get a little tired, frankly, of having to justify what I do, and and I don't do that anymore. I just put out what I have. If you think it's acceptable, fine. If you don't, it's still okay. I move on. <laughs> I mean, I I I don't I don't want to have to spend hours and hours saying, but I'm good too. Oh no no no. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it, my work speaks for itself, and I think that's true of every artist who's out there. You you can listen to it, and then you can decide for yourself. But uh, I don't feel like I need I need to say, oh, put me in there because uh, you know I'm good too. I mean that's that's crazy. <laughs> and I, I, I really I really celebrate you for the degree to which uh, you focus on making sure that the legacies of these black composers, you know, make it. To the next generation. You remind me of something that I ask a lot of people. There are so many uh, Black composers today, and I won't name any names, but there are many Black composers who don't feel an obligation to the uh, what I would call the activism for Black people and for Black legacies. I mean, mm -hmm. in your opinion, do, do you feel like being a Black musician um, requires at least a bit of that activism, considering where we still are today? I think so. I, I think even more uh, today because uh, of the political divide that, that's going on in, 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 in the country. Not that we haven't had it before. Of course, we haven't. But it's much worse now than, than I have ever known. Uh, I mean, in, in my lifetime, and I've, I've seen enough of it to, you know, <laughs> to, to recognize that uh, these times are extremely uh, dangerous and challenging. I mean, I will. I will not. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that. But I. But I think it's really important because of what has happened to us as a as a nation of people with ancestors who who were forced over here against their will. Okay, we have to deal with that. And and people like Ron DeSantis say that slavery was beneficial. Oh, come on. You know. You know what I mean. There's all of that. The banning of books. Yeah. Uh, the hatred and 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 all of the the stuff that's going on with the LGBTQ community. I mean, all you can go on and on, and yes, we have to uh, 
really keep that message alive. And there is a duty, I think, and an obligation to talk about it and to be sure that people know why it is important, because uh, otherwise, a lot of it is just going to go back to the, you know, to the dustbin of history. I mean, why is it that Beethoven and Brahms and Bach are still alive? I mean, you, you can turn on the radio and, and you can you can hear a Beethoven symphony. Okay, fine. I, I do that too. I mean, I'm not I'm not opposed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. Any composer in the Western canon, I mean, it, it's fine, but we need to hear alongside that uh, other uh, composers who were not white and who were not from Europe or who were from Europe and just happened to be black. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're all out there and their music needs to be put alongside uh, the Beethoven symphonies and, and the quartets and on and on. And, and, and there is an effort to do that now. If you look at... Uh, programs from the LA Philharmonic and orchestras across the country, they're recognizing that they have been, they really have been neglectful in not supporting it. And it's not that the music was never there. It was always there. They just never gave it the kind of recognition and acknowledgement that it rightfully deserved. So how does your uh, latest album, Reflections in Time, fit into, you know, the breadth of your work so far, this duty that you've been speaking to? Well, it, it's a nice, uh, I, I feel very happy about this recording because there are two premier works by Margaret Bonds that have never been uh, heard or recorded. And uh, I had to get permission from the heirs, those who are still alive, to record it. My friend uh, who is doing the biography also sent me uh, scores to these pieces. And I, I, I'm so grateful to him because Frankly, I did not know that the, these pieces existed. He found them in an archive at a library at Georgetown University in, uh, in D.C. That's how I got them. And uh, the only other piece that I was playing by Margaret Barnes for years was called Troubled Water, based on the yep. spirit, you know, waiting to And that was the only one I knew. <laughs> and then I, uh, <laughs> I I did play some of her songs, you know, with, with different singers, Uh set to the poetry of Langston Hughes, who was a very close friend of hers. But, you know, now that I found that, that I got these scores, I decided, well, let me work on these and see if there's a possibility for me to record them. And so this album fits in with that because there's music by two white composers that I, that I know. And there's music by Samuel Coleridge Taylor. There's some waltzes. Uh, there's that. And I thought, why not combine all of that, you know, to say that we're all doing, they're all doing music that is acceptable, that, it, that it's, uh, it's great to hear. And hopefully we're not thinking of it necessarily in terms of, well, this one was written by a black composer, so it has this or this one. I just put it all out there and yeah. let people decide whether they like it or, or not, you know, and I, I think it's really, really important to do that because it's like something that Jesse Jackson said years ago, we all came over here on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it sounds kind of, it's kind of like he was saying, okay, it doesn't mean we, we all have to, you know, lock hands, but he, what he's saying is that we got to learn how to work together, regardless of color, sexual orientation and gender. I mean, we have got to learn, and I don't see a lot of that. I see it in some little small places, you know, their aspect, but there is that, that 
far-right extreme thing that's happening in our culture that has really got people who are not sharp and who are not thinking, well, this person's going to save us, you know. Mm-hmm. We'll get out there and then, well, you know, I don't have to name names, but uh, that's happening a lot. And no one is going to say, all you've got to do, look back at what happened in Germany when Hitler came to power. And there were people there who knew that what he was doing was dangerous. But they went along because they were afraid of what might happen to them. And so a lot of the so-called good Germans did not speak up. Some Mm -hmm. did, some didn't. But look what happened. And now we've got, I'm going to bring it up. Now we've got all these extreme, uh, these far-right extremists. Uh, We've got issues with guns and gun violence, all of that. People are speaking out. They know how to, but, you know, it's going to take more than people just talking. There's got to be some action about what we can do to change the cultural landscape. I I may not see it in my lifetime, but I'm telling you, I really do worry about some of the stuff that I have been hearing and reading about. It's really a very, very perilous kind of time, you know, and uh, I think that people need to go beyond just the headlines and, and what's in the news and think about what can I do or what can we do? to make a difference and to change it because it's going to have to come from from enough people saying we're not going to take this and that eventually happened in europe you know which is why uh, but there are other people who are following in that man's footsteps mm-hmm. you know they want to bring it they want to bring it back and uh, or they're saying that the, the lives of certain people don't matter oh my god <laughs> you know i mean and that's that that is a frightening thing so my my music fits in with that uh, because I, all I'm trying to do is say here is something that needs to be heard. And as musicians, we're so used to saying things like, "Oh, the power of music," or "Music uh, can bring people together." But considering uh, how dire things seem to be sometimes, <laughs> can yes. music actually be that thing? Do you believe that music can help us begin to solve some of these problems? Well, some, but but I, I'm I'm uh, you know realistic enough to know that it it, it cannot solve every problem. Uh, I do think that there is a commonality, uh, you know, in in terms of how people can listen to something and say, "Wow, that was so beautiful," and or they'll carry the memory of that experience with them when they leave the hall or when they leave the space. Uh, music plays a part of a, a very big role in that. Mm-hmm. But I, but I'm I'm not naive enough to think that it can save all of us from some of these disastrous things that are happening now. It can be one component, but only one. It's going to take much more than that. It's going to take uh, people staying awake and being culturally aware of what is really happening. And and there are some people who are, who are who are doing that. But it's going to take more than just a few people operating. Uh, behind and and in the scenes to say we have got to change this we cannot this country cannot survive uh the way it is right now with all of this going on it's it's just simply not going to work we need to do more about uh taking uh taking care of children child care tax credits uh public free public education so that students don't have to pay huge tuition 
like they do at schools like USC and even the state university system. Education used to be free before Reagan took over as a governor and president because he said, oh, we don't need that. So here we are. You know, why can't we do what people do, what, what, what's happening in, in some places in Europe? You can go to the Mutter Theum in Salzburg and you can study there for free if you're an American. You don't have to pay. Mm-hmm. University in Finland, Finland. You you go to Finland. You want to you want to uh, uh, like uh, do something for a year. Maybe you want to work toward a degree. You don't pay. I mean, my goodness. You can use the library facilities. I'm I'm saying what what the heck is wrong with having free public education? The state. I'm talking now about the they don't want to fund it, and that's the difference between what happens in a lot of of countries in Europe and what happens here. The state should be responsible a free public education so that parents and guardians don't have to go through how much money do I need to send uh, Jane to school or John to school. You know, it, it's not right. But we're living, you know, we're, we're really not there. And that, that concerns me greatly because I, I want to see a big change uh, uh, with, with all of that. I really do. Affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, you can mm-hmm. go on about that. Uh, I saw very few homeless people uh, when I traveled. Uh, I was in South Africa uh, in 2017, I, and I did not see any homeless uh, people on the street. I saw people selling things, but, you know, uh, I don't uh, now Here, I, I have to go back and think every time I drive downtown Long Beach, there are tents yep. all around the main the public library. And I'm saying, my God, we, we should not have this. What is what is causing the and, and these are people we're not just talking about housing, but we have we need to provide mental uh, health services for many of these people is once you get the, once they're in a home or in a stable situation, there's more to be done. And we need to be dealing with that. I don't see enough of that. So going yeah. back to what you were saying, you know, about about music. Yes, some of it. <laughs> we can do some things, but it's not going to save us. Yep, yep. I, I, you mentioned USC. I got my master's from USC, so I know firsthand how expensive it is. I'll, I'll, I'll be knowing yeah. for many years to come as I'm working to pay it off. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and and you shouldn't have to do. See, it's it's expensive. It's too expensive. I have students who who uh, went to, went to USC, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Oh my yep. goodness! And and how are you gonna are you gonna be able to to work and pay what several hundred dollars a month to pay off the those debts? should be canceled or the university should say instead of paying administrators and trustees top dollar can we come down and make it much more affordable for students to come to this institution so that they don't have to be saddled with debt when they graduate you know see that's that's the whole idea free education and even if you have to pay it should not be so astronomical that you're stuck with all of that after you get your degree and then you're you're saddled with all this debt. It's crazy. And see, this is what Biden is trying to turn away. But you know, the Republicans are are saying, "Oh no, you you know, we can't have that." I mean, he he tried, but really, all of that debt should be canceled. Mm, I agree with you. I agree with you. You you mentioned. I want to touch on some of your uh, international travels and international mm-hmm. performances. It's one mm-hmm. thing to have these conversations about classical music, race within our American context. What do these conversations, from your experience, look like elsewhere? Well, uh, in all of the traveling that I've done, uh, 
I was accepted and welcomed, you know, over many, many years. Uh, I never, I never felt that wherever I went, that I was not welcomed as someone who could make a valuable or an important uh, contribution of whatever I played uh, or whatever I lectured on or whatever. And, and that, that was one of the nice things about it. Um, I never ran into any racist, um, how should we say, well, she's black, so she can't be as good as, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this other person, blah, blah, blah. And I never had that. Uh, and, and even in places where it, it I might have expected, I was thinking again about about uh, Africa, South Africa, because, you know, apartheid is no longer, uh, you know, that system was, was eliminated uh, a long time ago. But all I'm saying is that I never had a racist incident or experience in all of the traveling that I've done. I was always welcomed uh, and respected for whatever I had to offer. And uh, that has been one of the focal points of uh, of traveling. You know, you get to see the world in a very, very different way. And uh, it broadens your perspective so that when you do come back to the United States, you think, my goodness, we, we need to maybe think about uh, incorporating some of these ideas, like I was just talking about with free public education, maybe not every country, but you know what I mean, yep. having a whole different outlook on on how things are are done. So uh, I am very grateful to have been fortunate enough to do that. I have one more question I want to ask you, but before I do that, uh, how can people listening learn more about you uh, and purchase this newest album of yours? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it, it's on my website and uh, it's on all of the, the streaming sites like Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music. They can listen to the music. But uh, if they want to order CDs, uh, they can just go to my website or they can use my email and give me their information and I'll send it on out. <laughs> wonderful. I a, wonderful. I have a, a nominal fee. Uh, you know, it's not very expensive. Uh, 15 bucks if you're doing you know, or t- certainly under twenty dollars. I mean, you know, you're not going to have to walk out and, and, and pull out a fortune <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> to buy a record, you know. Um, so those are the two ways that uh, it can be done ordering directly from me or going to those streaming uh, services and just listening to the music. It's all uh, my son-in-law put everything out there. He's, he's, he produced the album. Oh, it's great to have family on your side. Oh yeah. (laughs) Terry, you would love Terry. He's amazing. He really has, uh, he's, he's been in the industry now for many, many years. He has his own, uh, he has a a major album that he did called surface uh, where He's got uh, Melanie, you know, my daughter singing, and uh, it was done uh, without actually having all of the musicians in the studio, but they were they were scattered all over the world. And uh, it was amazing the way he did it. And uh, he submitted it for a possible Grammy nomination. So I'm really excited about that. But he uh, he's so focused and, and so organized. I couldn't have done this by myself. No way. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask you, so we can talk all day about what the classical institutions, the conservatories, opera houses, orchestras, what they're not doing to reach mm-hmm. out to broader audiences. But I think the other side of the conversation that I'd like to think about is how we can engage our own people and get them thinking about this music in a different way. I don't come from a family of musicians, but I was, you know, very fortunate to be able to, you know, learn the bassoon and and uh, and carve out a career uh, for for yeah. myself as an orchestral musician. Even still, there are people in my own family that will consider <laughs> it white yeah. music. I wonder yes. how 
how, how you engage the conversation of, you know, how black folks, people of color can engage our siblings, our family member uh, members about this music that is as much ours as it is anyone else's. Yeah, I keep talking. <laughs> I keep talking to them. And, and one of the things that I've done, uh, I know I can relate to everything you're saying, because I used to work at a community arts center in the West Adams District in uh, in Los Angeles. And, you know, everybody there was uh, pretty much, well, you know, we're doing our thing. And, you know, you can't come in and tell us what to do. I mean, that was they didn't say it in, in so many words, but that's the that was the attitude. And so I just kept talking about what was important. And here's this music. Come on, it's it's not uh, so foreign. It's not uh, it's not about whether it was written by a black composer, white. But I I kept talking, and I would play uh, things for them and talk about why they needed to accept it or at least listen to it. Maybe they wouldn't accept it right away, but to say there's no such thing as black and white music for God's sake. It's only about music. You know, jazz was written by white composers. You know. The operas uh, are written by black composers. It, it, it's about everybody out there making a contribution. So we got to get away from that aspect of race. We really do. And uh, that's what I've done. And I still do that. I'm going, uh, I'm working with a group called Piano Spheres, which supports new music for the piano. All right. When I go to these community centers and these schools, I, I start talking. <laughs> and I, I, I keep bringing up this whole thing about why it's important and why we've got to stop using all of these these silly little categories because now jazz is a part an integral part of art music it's out there whether you want to hear it or experience it it's a part of dance it's a part of everything we do so let's not separate it so i uh, you know i talk about it like that and uh, i just keep doing it and most of the time i do make a dent I'll give you one example Omar was um, an opera that was, but you, you've heard about that. Oh yeah, Rhiannon Giddens and uh, Michael Abel. Yeah, I I went to the to the production uh, that that LA Opera did. It was amazing, but amazing because the hall was packed with so many people of color. I mean, why? Because of the the story and what that was about, and. They were concerned about, well, you know, we may not have an audience. And I mean, there were people who were waiting outside. It was sold out for every, I think there must have been about six or seven different performances of the production. And I mean, folks were standing in line trying to get rush tickets and all of that. I will never forget it. It was an amazing production. I'll never forget. It was very powerful. I mean, some people were walking out of there very emotional. You know, I, I never knew that this kind of thing happened and so it uh and they're still talking about it so that was a very very important uh uh milestone in in the history of la opera you know they had never done mm -hmm. anything like that and i thought it's about time you know it's about time all black cast incredible singers i mean they were just they were brilliant so you know that's one way to get them out there folks who had never been to the music center why oh that's that's for those white folks. No, 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 no. Hey, everybody can, can go down. You don't have to pay $300 to sit and find a circle. <laughs> you know, you go. You can get a cheap ticket. But see, why did they say that? Because that's what they have been told. And that they bought the stereotype that, oh, I, don't, I can't go down there. That's for white folks. 
you know, no, it's not. It's for everybody. And so the Philharmonic and Elliot, they, they really are now trying to change the model. And they're going to do more productions like that. They're doing William Grant Stills opera uh, this season, Highway One USA. I mean, it took a long time, like I said, for them to do that. But they are doing more and they're bringing in uh, black composers. The other thing that needs to happen is that the, the, the orchestra, they, they need to hold auditions where they can encourage young, talented black orchestra players to go in and audition. I mean, they really have no excuse by saying they can't find anybody. That's BS. You know, there are people out there like you, I mean, who can come in and do that. They haven't done enough. And it's not just the Philharmonic. It's orchestras, white orchestras all over the country. Uh, there was a big article in the New York Times about that. They're not doing enough and they can't say that they can't find anybody, you know, who's good enough. We have people right out there who are much younger in their 20s and 30s who are totally capable and who can play the orchestral repertoire. So same thing you were mentioning about how can we change it. I keep talking <laughs> and I keep encouraging my colleagues, spread the word, keep talking. It's not just about a place where only white folks can go. You got to get over that. <laughs> and some and and you know, in doing that, uh, I, I I hope I expect that I'm changing in some uh, small way what people have thought about all of that. tail end there of Tongue American by Margaret Bonds. It was such a pleasure to dialogue with Miss Waits and to hear a trill perspective on what we really need to be talking about in this industry. I'm incredibly grateful, so grateful. Shout out to Miss Waits and also shout out to her daughter for helping facilitate the interview. Okay, let me get into this triloquy so that y'all can go about with your day. Um, I want to share another excerpt uh, that I found intriguing from the autobiography of Malcolm X to sort of frame this. So at this point in the story, Malcolm X um, is dealing with a, uh, a white family that has so-called saved him from, you know, the poverty of, you know, where he grew up and, you know, taking him away from his mother, split up the family, X, Y, and Z. So in at the same time that these people are, you know, feeding him, uh, giving him work, you know, just really supporting him in a way that most people would see as positive and to many degrees, you know, was positive. He's pointing out how they don't actually see him as a human being at the same time in the way that they, you know, um, spout out the N-word here and there and, you know, speak anti-black things with him in the room, with him in earshot, not thinking that he would actually understand or even care what they were saying because of, you know, the degree to which they were taking care of him and all that. Anyway, let me, let me read here. Um, it says, uh, this is the voice of Malcolm X. What I'm trying to say is that it just never dawned upon them that I could understand that I wasn't a pet, but a human 
human being. They didn't give me credit for having the same sensitivity, intellect, and understanding that they would have been ready and willing to recognize in a white boy in my position. But it has historically been the case with white people in their regard for black people that even though we might be with them, we weren't considered of them. Even though they appear to have opened the door, it was still closed. Thus, they never did really see me. This is the sort of kindly condescension which I try to clarify today to these integration-hungry Negroes about their, quote, liberal white friends, these so-called, quote, good white people, most of them anyway. I don't care how nice one is to you. The thing you must always remember is that almost never does he really see you as he sees himself, as he sees his own kind. He may stand with you through thin but not thick when the chips are down you'll find that as fixed in him as his bone structure is his sometimes subconscious conviction that he's better than anybody black now as i said in the opening <laughs> to this to this opus um malcolm x had a huge story arc of, of of his life and you know went uh did his pilgrimage to mecca and um, saw a, a more together we prosper um, approach. But with that being said, I think there's something really powerful in what he has shared there. I'm bringing that quote because earlier this week I was part of a convening of orchestra leaders to discuss ways to make measurable action and change when it comes to the diversity of orchestra musicians across the industry. Now, in the spirit of Bodhisattva never disparaging, I won't say any names in particular, but at this convening you have people with a very searchable and very documentable history of oppressing black people coming to the front and talking about how DEI is a part of everything they do. In addition to this, you had orchestra leaders without any real power talking about how excited they are to have these dialogues, but unready to make the radical moves that can be done to get more black folks on stage. I'm going to keep this short and sweet to highlight how simple of an issue this is, at least the way I see it. In the same way that Malcolm talked about not being considered smart enough or sensitive enough to understand what was going on around him at that time in his life, I feel the same way when I hear the talk next to these outcomes and, and these sort of orchestral convenings. Don't piss on my head and tell me it's raining. If you allege that DEI is part of everything you do, and I go over to your website and see the same programming that's been utilized for over a generation, you're calling me stupid. When you have the opportunity to give tenure to one of the nation's best musicians who happens to be black, and you don't do that, don't expect people like me to isolate that from your allegations of having big goals for musician diversity. Look at the material as Tiffany Pollard once said, there isn't a single league affiliated orchestra in the country right now with diversity that's reflective of a push toward anti-racism. If there is an orchestra that does have a semblance of diversity, it's one, two black people, maybe three or four musicians among the entire orchestra. And similar things can be said about programming. We are not dumb. We see what you're doing. And when you dismiss folks like me who call these things out, you're doing exactly what Malcolm X was speaking to in the early parts of his life, being called a nigger, even if not in so many words, and being expected not to understand it or take it personally. Let's decolonize this thing called classical music by any means necessary, okay? <laughs> Peace and light, happy agitating, and I'll talk to y'all again next week. Thanks for tuning in. Mm -hmm.